as you are, we're reading this morning from Psalm, the whole Psalm, Psalm 110. Uh, you will find it in your, in your pew Bible there or on your tablet or device. Uh, and I think it, it may be up here, I can't recall. Nonetheless, uh, Psalm 110, I invite you to read and consider it with me now. The Lord said, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Last week we looked at Psalm 72 with the idea of Advent justice, again focusing on the kingship of Christ, and uh, this psalm, Psalm 110, uh, is fitting because it records David's thoughts which are almost certainly into the future about a future Messiah, Uh, a song that would be sung possibly as a, a new king over Israel would be enthroned, but obviously the song has so much to do with a future Messiah coming. It contains thoughts um, not only about a future perfect king, but as we just heard read, there is the mention of a priest, uh, which is uh, a new wrinkle. So this morning, firstly, we will look at our hope through our king's finished work. Secondly, our hope through our priest's finished work, and then our confident response to our priest king. There's the idea here that since this song is uh, about not only the present king over Israel at the time, uh, David being one of them, there's the hope of something else happening in the future, that David or his descendants may not immediately uh, witness or see, but nevertheless, there is this future hope. So firstly, Uh, the hope through our king's finished work. First, we realize in the very first phrase that this king's work is done. Uh, Right there at the beginning, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, uh, verse 1 is actually recorded by our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 12 as being authored by King David. Uh, Jesus is in that passage, poses the question of how the Son of Man is also the Son of David. He's pointing out to his disciples and the crowds that the Messiah is, in, in fact, of the lineage of David, according to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, 
uh, that is going to be the Lord himself. But what is David saying to his contemporaries in verse 1? As I mentioned, this is probably an enthronement oracle of a king uh, sung at uh, coronations. But David is saying that God the Father is in a sense speaking to the Messiah, whoever it will be, which means this Messiah will be someone who's a better king than David, someone who is greater than David. The idea is that at some point God will say to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Now, sitting implies uh, ceasing of action. It's done. It's finished. You can sit down and be seated. David is saying someday the Messiah will come and finish the work of the Lord that a normal king won't be able to do. So again, you have to put yourself in David's shoes or someone who's in the congregation in Israel at the time. They're singing this and they're, they're crowning maybe a new king, but they're obviously saying, but there's going to be something better. There's going to be someone who comes to the future who's going to be able to do what we wish we could, bringing God's sovereign reign and rule through all the earth, for instance. Someone is going to do it and then be able to sit down. But it says, sit at my right hand. Someone will be in the throne room before God the Father and not simply be able to sit down, but sit down at the right hand, which is the place of power, of privilege, and of honor. This person will be royal and will be set apart from all other royalty. And we know it's confirmed that this this isn't going to be David. He's going to die and none of this will happen. But Luke, in the book of Acts, says in Acts chapter 2, verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens. It's not David. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of the angels. And so as we're looking at Psalm 110, we have to quickly recognize this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament as being fulfilled already by the person and work of Jesus. Luke will say in Acts chapter 2, well, David didn't ascend into the heavens. Speaking of the ascension which had just happened and Pentecost which had just occurred, fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 36, which we already confessed this morning. But what about all of the unseen angels? Don't they have power? The author to the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 is very explicit. They don't have the imprint of God. And God never said this to them. They're not in the throne room, seated at the right hand of the Father. But the Son is. And so therefore, all that we have been saying this month, all that we will ever say about the kingship of Christ, in one sense we can say, it's done. It's finished. He reigns over all of His and our enemies. He's won a victory. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which we confess in a creed once a month here. 
But secondly, with regards to his kingship, there will still be final victory. So the next phrase here says, until I make your enemies your footstool. So while there is the seating of this king, meaning something has been completed, the next phrase seems to imply that it's not completely done yet. There may be ramifications or consequences to his victory that have not fully been realized. So as David um, as David's Lord sits at the right hand of his Lord, there is work going on against God's and his people's enemies. I would say much of that is right now. That would be according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, who also alludes very specifically to this psalm when he talks about the resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, just a couple of verses But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. For God has put all things in subjection under him. So there's this back and forth reality of it's finished. The kingship of Christ has begun. He's reigning. He's won. He's defeated his enemies. And yet all things are yet to be fully realized in subjection to him, although he is over all already. That started at the resurrection. His reign is because... He was a man, and yet he was God. And he walked out of the tomb on the third day. I know it sounds like we're talking about Easter all of a sudden during Advent. But there's no purpose to the incarnation without the resurrection. And that's implied by King David in Psalm 110. Everything is subjected in the sense that he's won the victory because he was raised. Then he ascended into heaven in his ascension, and then he's seated the right hand of God where he currently reigns. The resurrection and work of Christ has triggered the work of God that he's doing now against his enemies. And we have more of a filling out. If we skip over into verses 5 to 7, we see uh, some illustrations. So back to verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. What does that look like? Flipping over, the Lord is at your right hand. Continuing in verse 5, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He'll shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So this is an ongoing situation uh, since the resurrection. However, there seems to be a direct relationship between what's alluded to here in Psalm 110 and Revelation chapter 19. So there is a future aspect to this victory, that it has not yet occurred in all of its implications and consequences. 
I won't turn to Revelation 19, but it'd be verses 11 to 21, which seem to indicate that the Son, who is at the right hand of the Father, when He descends, when He comes back to bring the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, down from heaven to re-inhabit all of this, to restore all of the physical creation, there's judgment. There's battle. There's more victory. That's still yet to come. So there is a now and a not yet to the kingship of Christ. Now this has been our Advent theme uh, for the last three weeks, that Jesus is this Messiah King. He's fulfilled all of these uh, promises, all of these prophecies to a certain extent already. There is a hope that we have even beyond the original audience of King David. Why? We know who's in the throne room. We know what he did to get up there. We know who he is. We know that he's greater than David. We know that he reigns now over all of his and our enemies. We know he was raised from the dead on the third day. That's why he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. There is no hope apart from those realities. No hope can be gained in any other aspect of our life except belief and trust in this Messiah King. But there is another very important wrinkle to this Messiah King who is prophesied about in Psalm 110. If you look back at verse 4, which I uh, I skipped over, it says, "...the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind." You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So therefore, we have to recognize, firstly, that our king is also a priest, which is very unusual. There wasn't another person like this in Old Testament Israel. However, there is mention here of another individual whose name I think would make a very fine pet name, Melchizedek. Call him Dek, you can call him Melchi, and then you can explain what his name means in the Hebrew, King of Righteousness. That would be great evangelism, wouldn't it? Who is this person? Why on earth is he mentioned by King David in Psalm 110? I'm not asking you to turn to Genesis 14, but you may want to at least write that down. Very, very important passage, which seems to be out of the middle of nowhere. Why on earth does this king, who is a priest, show up to Abram in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. In that event, Abram enters the land of Canaan. He fights a battle. Then he meets with Melchizedek, who it says is a priest of God the Most High, who ends up bringing out bread and wine to celebrate uh, Abram's victory over some of the Canaanites. But it also says that this priest was the king of Salem. There's all kinds of reasons why this is here. First off, you have Melchizedek. Again, his name means king of righteousness. He brings out bread and wine, which would be uh, food, but also wine would be for a celebration. Throughout the Old Testament, that's what it's used for. But then what does it mean that he's the king of Salem? 
In Hebrew, Salem is also is translated shalom, which is the word for peace. So he is the king over a city of peace. This will become Jerusalem. According to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, David will conquer Salem. And it will become the city of David, which we know as Jerusalem. A priest would be a mediator between God and man offering sacrifices, which is why Melchizedek goes and meets with Abram. He not only brings bread and wine, but he offers sacrifices so that Abram would be acceptable to the God that he serves. And in response, Abram receives a blessing from Melchizedek and gives this priest king 10% of everything that he owns as a tithe. Hebrews 7 explains everything you would ever want to know about Melchizedek and why he is in the Bible. But Hebrews 9.15 says that there is a mediator or a priest for a new covenant. There will come a person who is also a priest king, who Hebrews says is in the order of Melchizedek. There was no other king of righteousness who was a king over Salem or a peaceful city who had these two roles as a king and a priest. But there is yet another thing that we have to notice about this person who's prophesied about in Psalm 110. He's not only a priest king, but he's a priest king who is eternal. David says this priest king will be in the order of Melchizedek forever and that God will not change his mind. So there should be two things highlighted about that. The reference to God not changing his mind over a priest could be in reference to 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. Eli was a priest in the days of Samuel and was responsible for his training, but Eli's sons It says, treated the offering of the Lord with contempt by demanding the people give them as much of their offering to eat as possible. Eli's sons were sinners who were taking advantage of their role as priests. So they are rejected due to their sin. But this priest king is eternal, and God will never change his mind about this priest king. Why? He will be without sin. He will be perfect. There will be nothing wrong with him. There will be no spot. There will be no blemish on his life. But also, what he does as a priest will be eternal. Because he is eternal. His offering is is eternal. Hebrews 7 explains all of this. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There is a priest king in the order of Melchizedek who is eternal, who is going to be without sin ever. And everything that he is going to do as a priest will be forever and will be eternal. 
And obviously, the author to the Hebrews says, that's Jesus. That's the real Melchizedek. The real son of David, who will reign in the city of David forever and eventually bring back the new city of David. On the cross, our priest king offered himself after a life of passive obedience culminating in his suffering on the cross. Hebrews 7.24 says, but he holds his priesthood permanently. And again, this all comes together in Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. Because he's eternal. It's unchangeable. What he did on the cross. The Shorter Catechism, as we have referenced before, how does Christ execute the office of king? We've answered that all month. How does he execute the office of priest? In his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Your sins have been eternally paid for. You can't undo that. That's unchangeable. The way the Father looks at His children is how He looks at His own Son. Because of His active and passive obedience throughout His entire life, Him enduring all of the suffering, Him being the true King of righteousness, bringing peace as the Prince of Peace, reconciled us to God. So therefore, we can look at our sin and say it's finished. Therefore, I have all the motivation not to sin all the more, not to take advantage of grace, but to obey Him, to love Him with a life of sacrifice. Why? Look what He did for me. All of this is in Psalm 110 verse 4. With regard to our new Melchizedek. But what then would be the response of the people to having a righteous king who reigns now and who will bring permanent victory in the future, who also was a servant leader who laid down his life for his sheep to earn them eternal salvation. What would the response be for those who heard this? Much less than our response should be, for we know much more. Our confident response to our priest king would be located in verse 3 where David will say, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Um, Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, points out the phrase, first phrase could be translated, your people will be free will offerings. There is so much New Testament imagery with regards to that, specifically from the Apostle Paul, who knew his Old Testament very well. 
Romans 12.1 will say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice or, or a free will offering. Philippians 2.17 will say, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 3 and 5, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Well, any of us who have ever played sports, uh, a modern translation for all of those verses would be, because of what Jesus has done for me, I can go all out. The whole Jesus came out of the tomb. He really was the king of the Jews because he's the king of the earth. And as king, he allowed himself to be sacrificed for my sins eternally, for his one-time perfect payment, for all of my sins. And David here in this song says, well, now in response, we're all free will offerings, which the apostle Paul will say in Romans 12 means everything I do is now a living offering. Not for me. Not for my needs primarily, but for His. For perfect obedience to everything that He will ever want of me. You want me to suffer, Jesus? I'll be poured out as a free will offering on the altar for you. I'll have nothing left in this life, if it means I'm in service to you. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 even touches on our finances. To say, Paul testifies to Corinthians that there are Macedonians who gave up more than a tenth on their own accord in response to giving themselves to God first then to the apostles that there would be church plants like what was happening in Corinth. But why? All a gracious, thankful response to what they had already received in Christ. All of that is in verse 3 in Psalm 110. That as David is prophesying of a perfect king, priest, Messiah, who will reign over all the earth, and who will bring his sheep to himself by his own sacrifice, can ask of us anything. And we will say, because I have gained in Christ, I can lose from a worldly perspective now. In time, resources, money, in stress and anxiety, for the sake of the kingdom, because of what he has done for me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have brought us to yourself as you have done as the perfect king of righteousness. We thank you that you are our perfect priest in the order of Melchizedek forever, that God the Father will never change his mind about you, Jesus, because of your active and passive obedience, because of your membership as the second person of the Trinity. But Lord, you will never change your mind about your sheep whom you have bought with the precious blood of your own Son. Therefore, would you enable us to obey you 
and to do whatever you command. Because you have eternally loved us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.